0: Thank you, our official uh, welcome and good morning. It is Sunday, January 17th. We are continuing our study in the Book of Romans, specifically the reign of life. And I'm going to go right to screen share and thank everyone for joining us. Uh, We are sort of in the thick of Romans 8. We have called this the uh, Mount Himalaya of New Testament revelation and we want to explore the doctrine that stands behind all of this assurance that Paul is giving us really beginning earlier than verse 29 but I'll start at 29 right to the very end. You could call this a fireworks of assurance, a fireworks of the de- de- declaring to those who belong to Jesus how sure they should be that they will be with him forever. So we see Paul writing, beginning at verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, noticing God is the, the, uh, the um, subject of all these sentences, those whom God foreknew, God also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, Jesus. And those whom God predestined, He also called, those whom God called, God also justified. and those whom He justified He also glorified. And then he goes on, and then we'll pray here in a second, this, again, this fireworks of assurance at the very end of chapter eight, raising lots of different questions that we'll subsequently look at in, in several weeks from now, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answers, I am sure that uh, there's nothing, anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray for us. We are so thankful, our Father and our God, for these declarations of your unfailing love, your covenantal faithfulness to your people, your promise to your Son that if he would die and be raised from the dead for them, you would give your precious son a people from every tribe and tongue, from Adam's ruined race. This is what you are doing. How we are uh, incredibly humbled to be numbered among that people, because we've called on the name of the Lord, trusted in Christ's salvation. We've experienced spiritual resurrection. Uh, Calling on the name of the Lord, trusting in him, repenting, fleeing to Christ, believing his cross is sufficient for the cleansing of our souls forever. So teach us now this wonderful doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. Encourage us with it. Comfort us with it. Use it that we might be very effective instruments in your hand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here is our subject Today, the Perseverance of the Saints, you may recognize that as the P in the famous acrostic tulip. That was a, an English summary of the, uh, the canons of the Synod of Dort, tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the Perseverance of the Saints. And I'm calling this one of the glorious implications of our union with Christ. So remember that Paul teaches us that faith unites us to Christ. So those who trust in him, believe in him, in whose hearts the Holy Spirit has worked, saving faith. We looked at the nature of that saving faith from James chapter 2 last week. What is true of Christ is true of all who trust in him. So let's tease it out for a second. God has glorified his son by raising him from the dead. Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of glory. God has glorified his son. It is on the strength of that, that those to whom he justified, Paul writes, he also glorified. And those of you who uh, recognize the doctrine of glorification in that, you realize that strictly speaking, is not our glorification future? We're still slugging it out with sin and the devil and the world in these bodies on this earth. In what sense can it be said that a believer in Jesus Christ has been glorified? Paul uses a past tense there. And as far as I know, the only time in the New Testament Paul uses that future Uh, sense of being without sin in the presence of God in paradise. He uses it past tense. He's glorified. Well, it's on the strength of union with Christ. If Christ is glorified, it must be true in some sense that we who belong to him are also. You may be recalling those wonderful verses in Ephesians 2, where when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ, raised us up together with Christ, and seated us together with Christ in the heavenly places. So in a real spiritual sense, we who know Jesus by faith are seated with the Father in Christ, now glorified. So if Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God in his session, and Jesus is assured of the Father's love, that's one of the symbolisms of having sat down. One of those as he finished his work of redemption and sat down. Well, if Jesus is assured of the Father's love, we must be assured of the Father's love as well. Because if it's true of Jesus, it's true of us. If, if it's possible that the Father could, could banish his son from his right hand, then it's possible we could be banished from God's presence. If Jesus could lose his seating or salvation, so to speak, so can we. Well, he can. not He sat down. He's basking in the Father's love, that unity of Father and Son restored for all eternity. Then we, too, can be assured of the Father's love. We should be assured of the Father's love. If Jesus has made purification for sins, then it, and then we, too, are equally cleansed from our sins. And if Jesus earned a perfect righteousness through his flawless, law-keeping life, We are as righteous as he is. So here are the benefits of the gospel, the benefits of justification by faith, a double imputation. Our sins go to Jesus. He imputes his righteousness to us. Okay, so that's that's how we're going to introduce this. Our faith unites us to Christ. So the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is ultimately flows from our union with Christ. So let's go ahead and define it. Again, as I said a few moments ago, we're getting the summary of the way God loves us Uh, from the canons of Dort. This was a a theological gathering in the Netherlands of reformed pastors, began in 1618. Article 6 writes this. For God, who is rich in mercy, Uh, I I want you to remember, oh, sorry, parenthetically, that the canons of Dort were a response to a theological document put forth by followers of Jacob Arminius. That document they put forth was called the Remonstrance. And they were basically challenging the, 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 the standard theology of the day, what we would call Reformed theology. They were challenging certain points of it. And as we'll see, one of those points was it's not altogether certain that once you're saved, you'll always be saved. So it was in response to the remonstrance that we get the canons of Dort. They act, the canons weren't actually um, come to us in the form of TULIP. That was a little bit later developed. They were in a different order than the TULIP. All right, so canons of Dort on perseverance. God, who is rich in mercy according to his unchangeable purpose of election, does not take his Holy Spirit from his own completely, even when they fall grievously. Neither does he let them fall down so far that they forfeit the grace of adoption and state of justification, or commit the sin which leads to death, the sin against the Holy Spirit, and plunge themselves entirely forsaken by him into eternal ruin. Now notice that's kind of a negative way of saying it. God doesn't let us do these terrible things. So you can talk about the positive doctrine of perseverance from the perspective of what God does not allow happen, that we ourselves ruin what he started. Or you can talk about it from a positive perspective. God keeps us in faith. He keeps us loving Jesus. He keeps us to the end. So there's Article 6 of the Canons of Dort. And there's two perspectives from which you can look at this doctrine. You can look at it from a human point of view and from a divine point of view. Let's start with the human. Seen from our perspective, this doctrine simply asserts true saints will persevere to the end and finally be saved. Notice how incredibly personal this is, this doctrine. This is about you. Will I make it to the end? And you wonder how, how this function for Christians who are being persecuted, who are terribly suffering. I remember speaking with a chronically ill parishioner uh, in my church in Charlottesville. He was uh, in, lie, lying on a hospital bed in his own living room out, outside of the city and speaking with this dear man. And uh, I was going to pray for him. And I said, w- what are the kinds of things I can pray for you right now? And he says, Please pray that I just hang on to Jesus. Well, that's an appropriate thing to pray. And of course, we pray with confidence that Jesus will be hanging on to us. But here he is near the end of his life. Concern that he makes it to the end. We have concerns about loved ones who began the Christian life strong and seemed to fizzle out. And we wonder, wow, are they going to come back to the faith? Were they ever really Christians? Are they going to finish the race of faith in victory clinging to Jesus? So this is a profoundly personal doctrine. So let's assert this. We may at times stray and plunge badly from walking with Jesus temporarily. The Westminster Confession of Faith acknowledges that this can happen. Uh, Chapter 17, paragraph 3. Nevertheless, they, Christians, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining within them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, we may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure, grievous Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt, and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. The Westminster divines acknowledging that serious believers can fall into this estate. It's dreadful, isn't it? Look at that. Who would want to be there? Who in their right mind would want to incur these kinds of things? But nonetheless, that's possible. And then we want to go on and assert, but we will believe through death, for no one is saved without faith at death, and we are finally saved, not on the strength of our faith, but on the strength of God's promises and his faithfulness. It's not the power of the man, but the potency of the medicine that delivers from death. So if everybody needs a life-saving medicine, and some power lifter who can bench press 500 pounds takes that life-giving medicine and moves it to his mouth with his strong arm, or some weak, frail, 95-year-old person with a couldn't be any weaker moves that medicine to his lips. It is the potency of the medicine that saves, not the strength of the arm of faith. Notice also what the Confession says. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficiency of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit, and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Look at your election. So if you if you wonder about, am I really a Christian? Will I make it to the end? Will I persevere? Start with the doctrine of election. I would never believe in Jesus. I would never follow Jesus if God isn't the one who had elected me. So I am the work of God from all eternity. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Uh, Saving me by his merit, which cannot fail, Jesus ever living to make intercession for me, and the presence of the Spirit within me. Uh, So, that's our persevering seen from our perspective, seen from God's perspective, he will preserve. So this doctrine can either be called the perseverance of the saints, because the saints are the ones who are persevering, or it can be called the preservation of the saints, because God is the one preserving. So seen from God's perspective, he will preserve all those elected from eternity. He will preserve them for eternity. He will complete the work he began. He elected us, he called us, he justified us, he sanctifying us, he will glorify us. God will complete the work he began. So our, all of our assurance, all of our hope, all of our confidence rests in what God will do. And God wants to be trusted for these things. God keeps his people through means. Now, this is, this is what we want to stress in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That we persevere through means. God gives us faith and he gives us warnings. God, as a rule, does not preserve us apart from these means. And I'm just going to list three for you and we'll tease them out here in a moment. He preserves us Through our prayers, through our watchfulness, and through faith on our part. So you have to understand that at at the heart of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, God preserves us, is that we must persevere, and we persevere using the means God appoints for us. Look at this wonderful assurance. We're going to see this um, verse again, actually, in the sermon this morning. Look at this wonderful verse from Peter, who himself had experienced a tragic denial of Jesus. So trusting in himself, he would never follow Jesus. Jesus is the one who restored him. Jesus is the one who gave his spirit to Peter for salvation and for witness. Peter writes, 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead right? He caused you to be born again. Why are you a believer? Why do you trust in his mercy? He caused that. And that living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is Jesus. He's alive. That's why we have a living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God's keeping heaven for you, and he will keep you for heaven. And notice this phrase, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, we haven't yet seen the full glories of our salvation. And how are we being kept for that salvation that will be revealed? We're being kept by God's power. And what is the means God is using? What, how is that power exercised? We're being guarded through faith. God keeps us in the faith by giving us faith. So we can make this, then, simple assertion. God ordains the ends, the ultimate salvation of his people, as well as the means, the means by which we persevere, that is, the ways we maintain living faith. Let's look at some of those. These are things you and I must be appropriating regularly in our lives. Perseverance of the saints does not mean now that you're saved, you kick up your heels and do nothing. Now that you're saved, sit back, relax, enjoy the flight, do nothing, look out the window. There's nothing to do. Absolutely not. The point we're making is that and that God ordains, our ultimate salvation is brought to pass through the specific means of the ways we maintain a living faith. The most precious thing you possess is faith in your heart. And it behooves us by all means to keep that faith living, alive, fresh, vital. Uh, And of course, this is what God does by his power. But he ordains the means. Here's some of those means. Just give this a general category called watchfulness. And under that, I've got a number of different things that the Bible uh, uh, delineates that... that, uh, that help us be watchful. For example, surprise, surprise, this is from Proverbs. Guarding your heart, Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It's in your heart that the Spirit resides. He created faith and repentance in there. The Spirit wants to continue to give you the grace of faith and repentance. We begin the Christian life. And we continue in the Christian life with the same two principal graces. We begin with faith and repentance. We continue with faith and repentance. You want to know how a specific Christian is doing in their life? Walk to them and ask them, how are you doing with your faith? What are you repenting of? A vital Christian whose heart is in revival, who is watching over their heart, will give you tangible answers to the ways the Holy Spirit is enriching and keeping them in faith, and they should be honest with you about the things over which they are regularly repenting. Keep your heart with all vigilance. You have to wonder, is that a a grossly violated commandment of Scripture? We're commanded to do this. Keep your heart. Watch over your heart with all vigilance vigilance. You don't want anything getting in there to poison it. Secondly, keep fighting sin. We're back here to Romans 6. Remember the first two imperatives in the book of Romans, verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin. This is the new person that you are. You're no longer a slave to sin. You no longer have to let sin reign. And the second impairment uh, excuse me, imperative is verse 12, Romans 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey its passions. Sin wants to reign. It uses its, tries to get back its reign over you by uh, causing desires to be over desires, inordinate desires, these passions, these epithemia, the Greek word we've seen. And this is an echo of the principle that we saw in our study. For life to work, something must be killed. Goes right back to the Garden of Eden. When God gave Adam and Eve the command, don't eat of that tree and you will live forever, it, and he inaugurated a principle. For life to work, something must be killed. Adam and Eve should have assaulted, they should have killed, they should have murdered any inclination that arose in them to disobey God. As soon as they sensed it, or when the liar came lying about where life would be found, they should have killed the liar, they should have killed the lie. For life to work, something must be killed. That principle was enforced before the fall, it is still enforced after the fall. What must be killed in you for your life to work, for it to look like what God wants it to look like? Sin. Mortifying sin every day. That's why Paul would go on and write in Romans 8, if by the Spirit we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. So watchfulness is guarding your heart, it's keeping Uh, keep fighting sin and it's nurturing your faith. Peter would go on and write in 2 Peter chapter 1 for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with. So this is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now that you have a living faith what should you do? What must you do to the very end of your life? Make every effort to supplement your faith, add to it, nurture it, develop it with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing. That's the expectation. We're not on cruise control, We're not on a cruise ship. We're not sitting back, kicking up our feet, doing nothing. We're adding to our faith these qualities and praying that they are increasing. This is Christian growth. This is sanctification. Sanctification is growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is growing in the bearing of fruit. It is developing our faith, increasing in the knowledge of God to bear fruit for him. If these are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. A healthy, persevering Christian will look at that phrase and go, Oh my, that's the last thing I want to be, ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. The Spirit wants me to be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, what follows? You will desire to be effective and fruitful and growing in that effectiveness and fruitfulness. And then Peter warns in verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So one of the keys to growing in these qualities is never forgetting that you've been cleansed from your sins, never forgetting the cost of that, the precious blood of Jesus. We're never losing sight of the cross. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. This is the doctrine of perseverance. We are diligent. We we trust God will preserve us. But the means he uses is we persevere by being diligent to confirm our calling and election. So it's one thing to say, it looks like God has elected me because he's called me to himself because I have faith in Jesus. Keep confirming that. Don't let that sit on the shelf. He says, if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, in this way, the practice of these qualities, through this diligence, being effective and fruitful in the knowledge of Christ, in this way all of these means of persevering. In this way, you will be richly provided for an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow, what a great practical commentary on the doctrine of perseverance. All right, so we're looking at different aspects of watchfulness, guarding your heart, you keep fighting sin, nurture your faith, standing firm in grace. I uh, hope to preach on this, probably one of my last sermons here, the end of February, uh, by Sylvanus, our, our faithful brother as I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. This is what the whole letter of 1 Peter is about, the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. <laughs> so where are your feet today? Where were your feet yesterday? Where were you standing when you gave in to that pet sin? Where were you standing? What, 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 what was your uh, foundation when some circumstance got the worst of you? Probably not standing firm in grace. And then, Peter, uh, then we have the next one. For watchfulness, keep yourself unstained from the world. You see, we could probably have a long list of these based on biblical revelation. I pulled out uh, just several. James writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows and their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Mercy ministry and looking at your heart, sanctification, watching over your heart with all vigilance, keep oneself unstained from the world. Keeping your heart from the world, trying to squeeze it into its own mold. And then not letting sin harden your heart, Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to falling away from the living God. So you read that, what should you immediately ask yourself? What is the state of my heart? Where does the evil lurk? Where would unbelief be lurking in my heart? What would be drawing me away from enjoying the living God? Ask yourself those questions. What is one of the keys to our fighting this propensity to give in to evil that still remains in our hearts, sadly. He says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's still called today. See, we need each other in this fight. This is not a lone ranger endeavor. We need each other, exhort each other every day, as long as it's still called today. Well, that's every day. (laughs) That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the means God uses That we persevere in the faith is that we are not letting sin harden our hearts. One of the means God uses in that endeavor is that we are exhorting one another. That presumes that we have relationship with one another. It presumes that we trust each other. It presumes that we love each other and we know we love each other enough to call out sin when we see it, to warn each other. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Saints hold their confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. Well, we want to be hearing the voice of God every day. How do you hear that voice every day? You open your Bible and you read it, or you open your mouth and you speak that word to those around you, to your loved ones. God uses. God using the voice of warning, God using the voice of comfort, God using the voice of admonition, God using the testimony of the work of Christ for you to keep your heart from being hardened. So there's, you realize, the only two kinds of people in the world, those who are at peace with sin and correspondingly at war with God are those who through the spoils of Christ are at peace with God and correspondingly at war with sin. If you're in Christ, you follower of Jesus, You woke up and sin was at war with you. Sin is at war with you. It's trying to get the better of you. It wants to to harden your heart to all things beautiful and good. How else do we exercise watchfulness? Resist the enemy. We'll also have a sermon about this in the next couple weeks. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So you woke up this morning not only at war with sin, you woke up this morning, this morning at war with the devil who's prowling about seeking to devour you. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So I've talked about watchfulness as one means of persevering, another is testing yourself. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So you'd say, okay, what is the evidence in the way I speak, the way I think, what I desire, what I do with my time? What is the, what, where are my appetites? Uh, how am I satisfying my appetites? Where is the evidence Jesus Christ is in me? So these are, this is some of the reasons why I'm, I'm uh, showing you the, the, this variety of things. Test yourself. That's a, that's a good thing. Regular basis. And then uh, he, uh, the Bible t- talks about prayer as a means of watchfulness. Here's one prayer. We, uh, we can be praying constantly. Ephesians 5.18. Don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. So praying Regularly, Every morning. Lord, here's my heart. It needs to be under the Spirit's control. That's the idea with filling here. The contrast is when you're filled with wine, you're under the control of wine. That's debauchery. It's being less than human. I want to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. So the question isn't how much of the Holy Spirit do you have? The question is how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? Does the Spirit rule your thoughts? Does he rule your emotions? And therefore, does he rule your behavior? So this is a command. Be filled with the Spirit. That should be turned into a regularly daily prayer on those who are being vigilant over their own salvation. Come Holy Spirit, rule in my heart, fill my heart, bring forth uh, the fruits that, you've, that only you can produce. And then Paul goes on and he gives these, all these participles of a way of living and interacting with each other. All these participles are dependent on that main verb, be filled. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then submitting to one another out of the reverence of Christ. All of these are evidences tangibly of being a person filled with the Spirit. So now you know what it looks like. You're able to worship with others. You're singing to the Lord with your heart. There's a song in your heart. You're giving thanks always in the name of Jesus to the Father. You're willing to submit to others out of reverence for Christ. And incidentally, that verse 21 is the doorway that launches Paul into that teaching on marriage, beginning at verse 22... And basically, Paul is saying, don't try marriage unless you're a person that's serious about being filled with the spirit moment by moment. And don't try marriage without an attitude of mutual submission out of reference for Christ. That arms you then to enter into that uh, intimate relationship of marriage where we are for each other, seeking the other's good, dying to ourselves for the benefit of the other, being filled with the love of Christ for the other, all of that dependent on being filled with the spirit. And I've also uh, added in here for you the, uh, the end of the armor of God passage, which Paul ends that passage on the armor of God in Ephesians 6:18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. Isn't it interesting that, of course, you you can't persevere without alertness. And Paul is saying, look how critical prayer is to that. Now, my sermon next week is going to be all about prayer. Can't wait. Um, but, but, But notice that he says that part of keeping alert with perseverance is making supplications for all the saints. So one of the ways we persevere is we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Pray that they persevere. Pray that God will make them fruitful. Pray that they will make their calling and election sure. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. What Paul means there is live in a spirit of prayer. Live in a constant sense of communicating with the Lord. It doesn't mean you never go to work. It doesn't mean you, when you're driving, close your eyes and pray. He means you're living constantly simply with a running dialogue with the Lord. You're thinking about everything, processing your life in the Lord's presence before the Lord. Giving thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Don't quench the spirit. And then this is the verse we're going to look at today. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Today's sermon is going to be the first half of that, the end of all things at hand. And I'll explain as we get into the sermon. I'd originally planned to do the whole verse this morning, but the more I got into it, I realized, no, that we need a whole sermon on this phrase, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Notice, Peter assumes they're praying. He assumes they're praying. What's the key to those prayers? Self-control and sober-minded. So that warrants a whole sermon. And today's sermon will be on this phrase, the end of all things is at hand. So spoiler alert, you know that we're going to have two sermons on this one verse in the next two weeks. And then again, uh, how does God keep us? What are some of the means of watchfulness? We hold fast to the faith. We must hold fast to the faith. And here are a couple of key verses that allude to that. Colossians one twenty three, Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, again, at the heart of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, God preserves the ones he loves, the perseverance of the saints, those he loves persevere, at the heart of this doctrine is the insistence that we continue steadfastly in our faith. It's not... Pick up your feet and relax. We do have peace that God loves us and will ever love us. But that peace, rightly understood, propels us to persevere. True peace with God, I've got nothing to prove, nothing to lose, propels us to persevere. And so this is what you see in the writings in the New Testament. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul says, I preached the gospel to you. You received the gospel. It gave you hope. It gave you confidence and certainty of everlasting life. It assured you Jesus has saved you. He'll keep you to the end. He's waiting for you in heaven. He can't wait to have you with him. But don't shift from that hope. Stay focused on that hope, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 2 Timothy 4.6, Paul is writing now at the end of his life. This is his last epistle. He knows that. Likely in a Roman prison, he knows he's going to be martyred very soon. So these are really the last written words that we have from the pen of the Apostle Paul. He writes, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. That's his way of saying, I'm about ready to die. I'm about ready to be martyred. There wasn't any doubt in his mind. How does he assess his life? I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. So you and I, we should put that over our doorway so that every day we go out of the house. we can. Say, that's our goal. I've fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. That's what we're aiming for. So he's got this amazing confidence, this amazing sense of doing what the Lord called him to do. And he begins to look forward, future, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, the day I die, the day of the Lord's appearing, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. So one of the ways we persevere is to love, love, be anxious for, look forward to the Lord's appearing. And then he writes in 17, after he mentions those who... uh, who didn't stand by him in some of his toughest hours, who publicly gave him a hard time, Alexander the coppersmith. He says in 17, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. He has a sense of being the Lord's vessel, the one through him. The Lord is bringing the gospel to the Gentiles in the ancient world so that I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's a man who knows he's going to be martyred, and yet his perspective is, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Those two things are not in conflict in Paul's thinking. I'll be martyred. My life will be given up for the sake of Christ in spite of the evil done to me. It will be evil to kill a Christian missionary. Yes, absolutely. The Lord will bring me safely into his kingdom. His soul is safe. So we, in the words of Jesus, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who has power to cast body and soul into hell. That was Paul. Uh, he didn't count his life as anything dear to himself that he might finish the course. And then Hebrews 6, 11, Same idea, holding fast to the faith. How do we persevere? We hold fast to the faith. We must do that. We do so by the power of God. We do so by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We do so by the means that God supplies us. Hebrews 6.11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, You can have hope. You can be fully assured into the end of your life or to the end of time, whichever comes first, so that you may not be sluggish. You know, there's a a sluggish temptation in your heart. There's a part of your heart that says, oh, take it easy. It's McDonald's theology. Give yourself. You deserve a break today. Or uh, what is it? Burger King. Have it your way. Uh... Outback Steakhouse. No rules just right. Make your own rules. No, 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 no. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How does the ultimate promise of being in the presence of God become ours? It's future. His presence is future. We imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then in chapter 11, he tells us what some of those the lives of those men and women look like. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which is it impossible for God to lie. When God promises to keep you to the end, he's not lying. That's an impossibility. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us where does our encouragement come from looking at who God is God can't lie, God makes promises, God will supply the power God is the one who wants me there I'll put all my trust and rest in him we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek That's the only anchor in history that goes up. All anchors in the history of the world, because of the weight of gravity, go down. We have an anchor for the soul that goes up into the heavenlies, into Jesus. That's where we see ourselves secure. That's where we're anchored. If Jesus has gone there, we will go there too. So we're out of time. Let me show you where we're going to begin next time. We're going to begin with this question, which is at the heart of the perseverance of the saints. Can a person who has true faith ever lose it? And we're going to see that the answer is, if you have salvation, you'll never lose it. If you lost it, you never had it. So we've got a bit more territory to cover. That's fine. Uh, It's uh, it's important stuff, I think. I hope it's helpful to you. Let me use the last minute to uh, pray for you. And I'll stop screen share so I can see you. Okay, good. Let's pray. Lord, it's impossible for you to lie. And it's impossible for your purposes to be thwarted. And we trust that because we have eyes to see Christ, we have a desire to, to be partakers in his death and resurrection, that you're the one that's done this. And you will finish the good work that you began. Give my brothers and sisters this full assurance of confidence, firm to the end. Give us grace to persevere and to help one another persevere to see to it that in our encouraging and loving and praying for and being with one another, sin does not harden our hearts. Make us that, congregation, though we're spread apart because of COVID, nonetheless, make us that, diligent to the end. May it not be that any person isolated by the virus is left to themselves and weakens and grows weary. No, may we be all the more diligent to encourage one another, even as we are diligent over our own hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you want to speak, you can unmute yourself.